This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Ken Charles, sitting in today for Mike Simpson. And we are here, as we always are, to talk about the latest developments involving the global coronavirus pandemic and what it means for all of us. Normally when you say we're number one, that's a good thing. But right now, not so much. It's six million and counting. The United States leads the world when it comes to the coronavirus. Yeah, we don't want to be number one in that. Nope, that is not the thing we want to be number one in, yet we are. Today we went over the six million case mark. The country also has the most deaths and the most people in the hospital. We'll investigate whether there's any kind of end in sight. And and here's a, a another problem, Ken, and that's for, for some folks, this virus, it just, it just won't go away. It latches on and weeks and weeks they suffer from symptoms and all kinds of misery. Uh, are there more long haulers out there than, than you and I think? There's a word and I don't like the word. It's a big word. It's pernicious. Oh, yeah. This virus is pernicious. Bad bug. No, this is not good. Wear your mask. Stay safe. Listen to our podcast. By the way, technology is now playing a bigger role than ever when it comes to learning, but a big problem is making sure our kids have equal access, especially with the virus keeping so many of them out of schools. We'll get into the positives and the negatives of online learning. Pinterest's big business decision could show how the future of work is changing in a major way and how you could soon drive by a lot more empty buildings. Now, let's get back to the new and unfortunate milestone of 6 million cases. Dr. John Schwartzberg is an infectious disease specialist and professor emeritus at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. He talked to Charles and Chris Seedens earlier today about why the U.S. is leading the world in cases and in deaths. Well, I have one, one major reason. It's because of the complete lack of leadership from the President of the United States and his subordinates. Uh, he has really represented an abject failure in the management of this pandemic. That's not really a political statement. It's just an objective observation of what's, um, what's occurred. From the very beginning, um, we have been behind the eight ball with this pandemic. We were ill-prepared for it. And there is one thing that um, we can't blame this president on by himself, and that is the fact that public health itself has been underfunded now for several decades in this country. So we were ill-prepared for the pandemic when it started, and then we had very poor leadership. Joe Biden says if health experts push it, uh, if he becomes president, he will look at implementing a mandatory mask order in the United States. People can debate whether that infringes on rights. That's for another time. But strictly from a containment standpoint, a life-saving standpoint, uh, in fact, a getting back to normal standpoint, could a mandatory mask order work? Well, we know that masking works. Uh, that's been established not only in this country, but in every other, every other country that studied it. Um, when more people mask, there are fewer cases transmitted. It is one of our major public health tools. It has nothing to do with politics. So the answer is that if we got everybody to mask, we would dramatically reduce the number of people getting infected. It's not a solution in and of itself, but it's a major piece of the solution. So um, let's be now, if we can, as brutally honest as we can be with people listening to this. Um, 
There's no sign, and check me if I'm wrong about any of this, there's no sign at the moment that the virus is mutating and getting uh, less pernicious. Uh, we're never going to get everybody in this country nowhere near the figures that I think you and other experts are saying are necessary to wear masks on a consistent basis. <clears throat> we may or may not have a vaccine, and if we do, its wide distribution is probably a good half a year to maybe year and a half away. So what are we realistically looking at in the near future? Well, in the near future, we're looking at mitigation. And we can do this. We saw that, uh, you know, California did it very well in March when we went into our lockdown. It was horribly painful to do that, but we saw a dramatic decline in the number of cases. We led the nation, really, in the way we responded to this, this pandemic. Unfortunately, we, along with the rest of the nation, opened up too soon, and we saw the consequences of that primarily in July. Right now, we've got so many more cases than we had in March, even though we're on a decline. Um, we are in the position to start to think about opening up again, but we're going to be opening up again with, with a baseline that's so much higher than it was in May and, and June when we opened things up. So that's a long way of saying that we can control this without pills, without vaccine. We can't get rid of it without treatment and vaccine, but we can markedly mitigate the number of people who get very sick and the number of people who die if we just follow basic principles, and they are the standard things. They're, yes, wearing a mask, and they are social distancing, and they're doing things that are prudent and don't do things that are imprudent. And I think everybody knows what they are. They're just not doing it right. From a medical standpoint, doctor, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Well, it, um, I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic that uh, the vast majority of the American people understand what to do. The vast majority of the people on this planet understand what to do. But we're in a better position to do it than many less developed countries. I'm also optimistic that scientists today are working together in, in ways that they haven't worked together in, certainly in my professional lifetime. Um, we have the greatest minds in the world working on this problem. We're going to find an answer in terms of a vaccine. We'll likely find many more answers in terms of treatments, not only treatments for the very ill, but maybe things that we can take the minute we're exposed or the minute we get symptoms. So I'm very optimistic there. I'm also optimistic in the short run that we're going to have far better diagnostics that are cheap, that can be done at home and get results in 10 or 15 minutes. And I think that's around the corner. And when we have that, and we could test ourselves most every day or every other day, we'd know where we stand and we know who we, we could be with. And that would be not a complete game changer, but it would really change the way we interact with other people. Dr. John Swartzberg, a clinical professor emeritus, UC Berkeley School of Public Health. Doctor, thank you. Since you're listening to us, you're clearly following this pandemic, which means you've probably heard the term long hauler. No, it's not truckers. Those are the people who can't seem to shake the virus. It sticks with them for weeks and weeks on end, leaving behind respiratory and even neurological problems. And we are starting to learn more about these so-called long haulers and how the virus impacts them and if there are more out there than we all think. 
Dr. Natalie Lampert is with the Indiana University School of Medicine, runs the Lampert Health Lab, studying long-lasting COVID symptoms. And Diana Berend is founder of something called Survivor Corps. It's a support group for COVID survivors. Chris Tiedens and I asked Diana first about how common long hauling might be. So I have to tell you, it is much more common than anyone realizes. The CDC put out a report about a month ago saying that one in three people are not recovering in the time expected. And out of those, one in five are young, healthy people with no pre-existing conditions. Now, yesterday, we just reached six million infections. So even if we take those as conservative numbers, we're already at two million people still suffering from the virus months later, months after infection. And so we are looking really at a blueprint of, you know, the next decade or more of public health. Um, you know, the, the COVID, the, you know, we, we are only looking down the barrel of the next wave of, you know, trauma from this virus. So as a country, we are tracking infections, we are tracking hospitalization, and we are tracking morbidity. But remember that most people are left to recover at home. And those are the people who we're talking about. We're not talking about the people who are hospitalized. We're talking about young, healthy people who were left to recover at home with Tylenol and Gatorade, but not under any medical supervision. And what we're seeing is that they are not recovering. And it is truly frightening. Dr. Lampert, um, is there any model for this sort of uh, impact of a viral infection in other for other viruses because obviously with covid it's still so new nobody really knows if these uh people who are still suffering from symptoms if it's going to end in six months a year six years nobody knows that is the main concern how little that we know about the longevity of some of these long-term symptoms i will say that there are other types of viral diseases that can have these types of post-viral effects we know that sars the, um, you know, the symptoms of SARS can last for quite some time. But what's really surprised me with the research that I've done about these long-term COVID symptoms is the wide variety of them. A recent survey we did having people report their long-term symptoms, the participants reported 98 unique symptoms that they associate with COVID. So it's the long, the, you know, the wide variety of symptoms, but also the fact that they impact so many very different body systems. So I'm glad that you mentioned that in addition to the flu-like symptoms of fatigue and body aches and fever, the long-term symptoms that we're finding through research are also related to um, memory recall, difficulty concentrating, dizziness, blurry vision. So these are things that you would not typically associate with a virus. They can happen with other viral diseases, but with COVID, it's quite expansive, the types of impacts it has. Diana, with your support group, what kind of a range are you seeing from very severe cases to less or minor minor cases? We are seeing people who are really, truly debilitated. Um, and I'm talking about 25-year-old marathon runners who now can't walk to the corner. Um, people who have, you know, COVID-onset diabetes or COVID-onset lupus, um, people who have such severe neurological impacts that they are really afraid that they're not going to be able to go back to work. Um, and so, you know, it, we're seeing two groups of people. We're seeing the people who got sick and never got better. So they've experienced all of these symptoms in, chronically since the day they were infected or they presented with symptoms 
But now we're seeing a second group of people, and I am included in that group. I had COVID in March, in early March. I was one of the first people in my area outside of New York City to get infected. And I, you know, I was sick for a few weeks, and then I had a couple of months where I felt really much better. And then all of a sudden, I had not a reinfection, but a relapse of symptoms. And I've been suffering from that for the last two months. So all the weight that I had lost during COVID, I regained, but now have lost again. I spent this morning at a gastroenterologist. I have appointments with ENTs uh, in the next with an ENT in the next week, with an ophthalmologist this week. Um, I but I'm extremely lucky because I have access to Mount Sinai's post-COVID care center, which is the first of its kind in its in the country. But what we need is for that type of care to be available to everybody. And so what Dr. Lambert and I are trying to do is to create research that will inform clinicians and inform patients so that they can advocate for themselves so that when they go to the doctor and they're being passed off as just having anxiety, when they're actually experiencing tachycardia, they can you know, advocate for themselves, and hopefully that clinicians know right. what to look for. Doctor, uh, do we know whether or not these symptoms that these people are having are caused by the virus itself that perhaps is lingering in the body and maybe even undetectable longer than anybody previously thought, or are they suffering from the impact the effect of the virus on the body, and for some reason, their bodies never go back to a kind of normal state. That's a excuse me. That's a great question, and one I'm asked quite a bit. And unfortunately, the only answer I can give right now is that we don't know which of these lingering symptoms are directly or indirectly related to the virus. You know, there's some people thinking, uh, you know, I've had this underlying condition, or they say, well, I'm having severe joint pain is one of my long-term symptoms. I've had a little bit of joint pain in the past, but now it's absolutely unbearable. You know, we just don't know exactly how the virus is activating these particular problems, but that's why we're really focusing on understanding the range of problems and the relative severity, and then we can dig deeper and try to answer some of these questions. Okay, Dr. Lambert, thank you again. That's Dr. Natalie Lambert. She's at the University of Indiana School of Medicine. Also, Diana Berent, uh, founder of the Survivor Corps Support Group for COVID survivors. The vast majority of schools across the country remain closed, which means kids are learning at home on their computers, or at least that's what they're supposed to do. It shows just how important technology is now for kids in school, but there are digital divides which can complicate things. KYW's Matt Leon talked to Larry Lieberman. He's, he's the uh, CEO of Mouse.org about how kids, parents, and teachers can all excel during this very strange and different school year. The gaps in technology um, have been exposed in ways most of us weren't even aware of. Because, we, you know, as we get to the school year, there are gaps in technology training. There are gaps in technology devices. There are gaps in technology connectivity. There, there are gaps all across the board that are challenging families right now. And I think a lot of us take for granted the technology we have around us, multiple screens, high-speed internet. I mean, doing the learning from home is difficult enough, challenging enough in the best of circumstances. But how concerned are you that we're going to have kids left behind because they don't have access to tech? Are you have four kids trying to split one screen? And 
How can we start to try to address that digital divide? Sure. Um, you know, I'm an optimist. And the good news is that kids learn from everything around them, right? They, they don't just learn while they're in their seat in the classroom. So I think it's important that we go into this school year knowing that kids learn best from the people they trust the most. And that's why the teacher-student bond is so important, because it's that relationship that really helps students learn. As we shift to remote learning, parents have an extra large burden this semester um, because they're going to be the person next to the child who they trust the most and will be looking for for a lot of their education needs. What is your level of concern with kids learning at home from the idea that do they do we know do they retain knowledge like they do in a normal classroom setting uh you know i I think there's a lot of research that says a lot of things um there is evidence that homeschooling as its own thing uh works quite well for many 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 students i think the important thing in this situation is that it's not by choice We're in this situation right now where uh, students are being uh, directed to do their learning online, independently at home, in small groups, and it may not be the best solution for any one of these particular students. So let's focus on when the kids are home in a digital learning environment. What are the big keys to getting the most out of that digital learning situation? Because I think in the spring, everybody was addressing this on the run, a lot of trial and error, what should parents focus on uh, as this new school year begins? Yeah, I think it's important for all of us. We look at September as being completely different uh, from a parenting and a teaching perspective than it was um, in the springtime. In the springtime, this was going to pass quickly and we needed to get through it. Um, now we're at a much different point. We're launching a whole new school year, um, and it's really, really critical for parents to think clearly and, and work with their kids and, and, and be compassionate about trying to keep them on a regular schedule. First, you know, it, it's just all too easy, and, and we do hear this from, from teachers, um, from kids, from parents, that it, kids can shift into this nocturnal you know, schedule, which isn't healthy for them to to succeed at home learning. So the most important thing for parents is to try and keep their kids as best they're able on a regular schedule. Among other things, it's helpful, especially for working parents who have to keep their own schedules. Um, The the second thing is um, to give your child as close to a dedicated workspace as they can have. And it certainly can be the kitchen table uh, and in many cases, and in, it's going to be the kitchen table. But young people need a place where they can focus on their learning, where they can pay attention to their work. And there'll be hours a day where they'll be on Zoom calls or, or, or video conferencing with their teachers and individually or in groups. So the two biggies um, are really, you know, keeping your kid on a schedule as best you can, um, giving them a dedicated workplace, and then trying to understand the, the tools you have around you to support them. All right, that's for school. Now, what about the future of work? Could it change forever? And if so, is that bad news for the commercial real estate owners? There's already lots of office spaces open, and there's probably more to come.
Even more space is freeing up now that uh, Pinterest, the design social media platform, is going to pay nearly, ready for this, $90 million just to get out of its office space lease in San Francisco. That's crazy. That I is know. a big number to get out of something. Yeah, you really want out of something when you want to fork over $90 bucks to do it. Richard Green directs the USC Lusk Center for Real Estate, Chris Edens and I, asked what this says about the state of commercial real estate right now. Well, what it says to me is people are a little myopic um, because I, I think once COVID is in the rearview mirror, and I don't know when that would be, it could be a year or two from now, um, I think people will return to offices. Now, I, I think people will work, work from home more often than they did before because we've learned that people can do that. But at the end of the day, if you're at a company like Pinterest, any kind of tech company, people do need to have the accidental conversations together. Um, but I, I think, you know, I don't know how many years of rent they basically bought out, but if it's more than two, I think that maybe they acted a little hastily. Well, of course, there are other companies that are, are either doing the same thing or considering doing the same thing, which I guess surprises me because I, I always heard that the one sure bet, uh, if you're going to invest in anything, whether it's as an individual or certainly as a company, it's real estate and, and property and things like that. So is that changing because of the pandemic? Well, I think first thing is there is no such thing as a sure bet. And if you look at like regional shopping malls right now and invested in those 10 years ago, you wouldn't be that happy. But no, I think I, I, I think the market is overreacting right now. I do think um, people are going to still work together in the years to come. I do think when we look at the history of our cities like New York and San Francisco, they've gone through periods of trauma. They do snap back. It may be three or four years before it happens. But in the end, I think people are going to work in offices. The question is how differently they're going to work. And again, I can imagine that they'll work from home two days a week and go in the office three days a week instead of being in the office five days a week. But you're still going to need office space. And I think it also quite likely that we're going to want more space per person in an office building when they are in the building, because people are going to want to be a little more distant from each other. I, I did see one survey that said uh, there were 4,400 tech workers who were surveyed. Two-thirds of the respondents said that they would consider leaving the city and the entire region that they worked in permanently. In other words, like leaving Los Angeles, doing the same job from your home, putting on your sweatpants, living or living in Texas or in Florida. Um, I, I understand from what you're telling us, you don't think that's going to be so much the case, but do you see us leaning more towards something like that? Well, I do. I mean, what we have been seeing is people um, leaving California for a couple of years now, but the, but the people who have been leaving have not been people who work at companies like Pinterest or Google or Facebook. They're um, people who can't afford the housing here, and that is a real problem here. And I, I think that is something that we do need to continue to be worried about. But there's a reason Google invests in a Googleplex, which is they want people to voluntarily stay on their campus because they think they get a lot of productivity out of what's called the accidental conversation. And I, I don't think that's gone away. Um, so people could say they want to move, but I mean, these attempts have been made in the past without success. And so uh, I do think you will see a recovery of these cities and these markets within two to three years of the end of COVID. 
What we don't know is when that end is going to be. Right. Richard Green directs the uh, USC Lusk Center for Real Estate. Uh, Richard, uh, thank you. Since the pandemic started, lots of questions and choices have been swirling around all of our heads, all at the same time, it seems. Is it safe to go to the grocery store? Can my kids have a play date? What if I walk by someone who isn't wearing a mask? Should I return to work if my boss asks me? Well, all these thoughts are just making us exhausted. I'm exhausted just having said that. Listen, yes, I'm (laughs) exhausted trying to figure out what the answer to any of those are because I don't have it. Well, there's a team or term for it, uh, decision fatigue. There's always a term for everything, isn't there? There is now. Yeah, who makes up these things? Apparently Just... people at Florida State. <laughs> yeah, because they, the psychology professor there at the Florida State University, he coined the term, says it's a state of low willpower that results from having invested effort into making choices. So basically you get tired from making so many choices, which means you might not be making the best choices after a while. He says the best thing to do is to make important decisions in the morning after a full night's sleep and a good breakfast. But here's the problem with that, I figured out. I have to always decide every night, how long do I want to sleep and do I want to have breakfast? Those are more choices. Well, full disclosure, I'm a Florida State Seminole. Ah. I went to college. I'm a big fan of the football team. They need to take some of this advice because, boy, do they need to make some better choices. <laughs> you can find this Radio.com original podcast and others on Radio.com and the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. And don't forget, hit the subscribe button so you can hear Coronavirus daily, daily. And you know something? I just realized that to do all of that, people have to make choices. They do have to make choices. And according to my guys at Florida State, eat a good breakfast. <laughs> and then decide. Thank you.